0: Oh my fucking God. I'm reading the uh, White House statement from their press conference on December 17th, where they said, For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. Here's an idea go fuck yourself, all right? Thank you very much. Don't tell me what I'm looking at a winter of. I know what I'm looking at a winter of, and it doesn't include severe illness and death. It includes brandy and overeating. You know, speaking of which, everybody sits around and gets fucking fat eating crap and desserts and sugar all winter anyways, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So maybe White House should uh, chime in on that. Hey, you piles of shit. If it wants to refer to us as people that will be experiencing severe illness or death, why doesn't it start with why don't you put the third piece of fucking apple pie down this Christmas uh, because you already look terrible? All right, I'm vaccinated. Don't worry, I'm 468 pounds, and I just shoveled half a pumpkin pie in my face. All right, I'm off on a tangent here, obviously. We got Peter Schiff on today. That doesn't uh, have anything to do with what I just said, but I was just reading that as I started, so that's my, uh, I guess we'll call it my cold open. My cold opening. Yeah, I planned on saying that. I don't think any opening will ever be better than Tom Segura, that one episode on Rogan, when he's like, well, well, well. If it is an old horseworm Rogan, <laughs> I'm so jealous. I fucking wanted, I want somebody to say that shit on my show. That was the, I, I rewind it and listened to that five seconds of that podcast all the time because I thought it was fucking hilarious. All right. Anyways, apparently this isn't the Joe Rogan podcast. This is the QTR podcast. How the hell is Everybody. Uh, what's going on today? I want to thank my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. They're the people that keep this podcast going. First and foremost, my friends over at J.M. Bullion is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion, J.M. Bullion. at tw- They are on Twitter, at J.M. Bullion. Uh, They've been in business for a decade now. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They turn around my orders very quickly. They ship them right away. The packaging is discreet. If you've never bought gold or silver bullion through the mail, they make it a very easy process. You could check out their website, jmbullion.com, or email the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. She would be happy to help you out. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Doomberg, a 100% free substack that I love to read. They take a skeptical Austrian style take on markets uh, and just a common sense take on markets. Check out Doomberg. The link to that is in my podcast description. They are kicking ass. I think they have like over 15,000 readers now for very good reason. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friend, George Gammon, over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh, as well as with people like Brent Johnson, to help you navigate the world of -of out-of-control central banks. They do it by offering several whiteboard videos a week, Q&A videos, live Q&A streams, uh, with their experts. They have a great forum that I love to read with model portfolios. Uh, Rebel Capitalist Pro is definitely worth the investment. The link to that is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room, which is a one of one of a kind, get it together here, Chris, one of a kind piece of software that helps you track options flow, which can oftentimes uh, give you some information on which way the equity markets are going to move. So tracking options, because they're a little bit more illiquid and it's easier to see money come into them, uh, can be a much more lucrative practice than trying to just read equity tape. There's no better piece of software to do that than the Steam Room. There's nobody that I've known longer that is doing this uh, other than Sangluci and maybe uh, Open Outcryer. my two friends that I met in like 2012, 2013, when I started on Fintwit. Uh, they've been doing it. They've become masters at it. Check out Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room. And special holiday shout-out to my buddy Open Outcryer too, because he's a wonderful guy, and we all know each other, which is great. So I know Lucci won't mind. Any of these people, you want to try any of these services for free, just tell them QTR sent you, and you want a free trial. They'll make sure you get it. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, my buddy Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Saul, my new column, Fringe Finance, which is over at Substack. You can check that out. The link is in the podcast description. Some of my longest-running supporters I want to thank here now that we're at the end of 2021. Some people that have been with me for going on four years, like Max Mulvihill, Mark Haywood, Kyle Thomas, Chris B, Darius Kordonski, Chris Gerard, and sheer luck. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast it's been a crazy four years. We're now averaging like something like thirty to 40,000 listens per episode, which is just incredible. Not bad for a guy that just started barfing into a microphone because it was cheaper than going to therapy, but here I am. All right. With that being said, I'm not an investment advisor. This podcast has a three-drink minimum, formerly a two-drink minimum, but due to inflation, we moved it up to three. I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not a registered anything. I hold no licenses. I hold no registrations. Nothing with FINRA. Nothing with the SEC. I am not an investment advisor, and this is not investment advice. Not a solicitation to buy or sell any securities, but yes, a solicitation to take a swig of your brandy because we're going to get started. And we got Peter Schiff in the house today. All right. I want to, uh, you know, show some love to Mr. Schiff because he takes podcast requests at like the last minute which is basically what today was and uh you know you might think i know he's got shit to do because he runs like three different companies or i don't know what you do peter maybe you can explain the the legalities of what exactly your positions are like uh what's his name rothstein and casino you know the food and beverage manager of Euro pacific capital whatever but uh but peter took my call today i said hey i want to do one more before the end of the year there's nobody i'd rather have on than peter and so here he is with me what's going on brother
1: Oh, well, not too much. You know, I'm just getting ready for the holidays, not doing much this year, not doing any traveling. So staying home for a change. Although a lot of people come to Puerto Rico to vacation during uh, December. So it's not a bad place to be.
0: Yeah. And the weather's probably a little bit nicer than it is here in Philly.
1: Oh yeah. It's way nicer. That's
0: for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you just mentioned to me uh, off the air, you know, that you had a big party at your house and, uh, you know, I, my invite must have got lost in the mail. I'm not sure what happened. Do you have my correct address on file? What's going on over there? Yeah,
1: well, we kind of only really invited people in the neighborhood,
0: <laughs> but we have we, we,
1: we have uh, we have a lot of parties here. So,
0: yeah. Well, anyways, listen. I uh, of course I'm breaking your balls. I wanted to um, talk to you because uh, I had asked for your thoughts a couple of days ago, and I know you're super busy. Uh, and we didn't really get a chance to link up about it, but I watched this interview with Jim Rickards the other day on Stansbury and I'm not sure if you saw the interview.
1: Yeah, no, I did because uh, a lot of people like asked me to comment on it. You know, oh, I don't okay. normally watch, um, you know, uh, those interviews, but a number of people were like, hey, you gotta, you know, you gotta listen to, to this. So, um, so I did. So I, 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 I saw it
0: okay so I want to go over some of the things that he said and I want to get your take on it I mean look one of the first arguments that Rickards makes and I know that you guys respect each other because I've seen you guys on the same uh, you know podcast before where you where you you know do you debate or you field questions from uh, different angles you know one of the first things he says is look uh, we may have already seen peak inflation because uh, the comps, from 2020 into 2021 were treacherous, which, you know, exacerbates the CPI number, even the bullshit number that you talk about. And you've spent your last few podcasts talking about why the CPI is uh, a terrible number to go by and how rigged it is. Um, but 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 putting that aside, he says because the comps were, were worse from 20 to 21 that the official CPI number is going to look better in 2022. So right off the bat, what do you think about that? Well,
1: I think he's probably wrong. I, I, I don't think he has as good an understanding of inflation as he, as he thinks. Um, you know, I, I, I think, is there a chance that 2022 inflation could clock in below the 7.2, 7.3 that we're likely to get for 2021? I mean, it's possible. I mean, I, I mean, it's not going to be anywhere near 2%, but, you know, could it be lower? It could, uh, but, you know, I think there's as good a chance, if not even better, that it will be higher than uh, 2021. And, you know, 2023 will probably be higher than 2022. You know, I I think we are in the early stages of a rather substantial uh, inflationary period. I mean, we've actually been in this inflationary period for some time because the inflation is the increase in the money supply. And, you know, Rickards acknowledges that we've had a big increase in the money supply. He just somehow doesn't think any of that money is out there. Um, And I don't know where he comes to that conclusion. I mean, look at these massive budget deficits. The government is collecting all this money. They're not, you know, getting all the tax revenue. So that money is out there. It is making its way into the real economy. Look at our uh, trade deficits. You know, we got, you know, a huge surge in the current account deficit. Just came out in Q3 earlier today. Uh, you know, the biggest uh, current account co- deficit in 15 years and a quarter. I mean, this is all money that's being printed and being spent. I mean, it's it's clearly uh, out there. But I agree that there's a lot more money that has been created that is yet to make its way into the real economy. And it's going to, you know, and that's just going to really accelerate, uh, the increase in consumer prices, and especially when we get a weak dollar. Now we didn't get a weak dollar uh, in um, 2021. I expected the dollar to be weak, and it wasn't. In fact, I'm probably gonna have to pay uh, Brett Johnson uh, a gold coin. In fact, Brett was at my party. By the way, <laughs> he moved to Puerto Rico, so he got he got an invite. Um, but um, so you know, but I do think that we will get. Um, a weaker dollar in 2022, uh, even if we got a reprieve in 2021. And that is going to really push up prices because we had this big increase in consumer prices in 2021 with a strong dollar. So uh, it can certainly be much more pronounced with a, a weak dollar. And also one thing I wouldn't be surprised to see in 2022 is some type of movement in owner's equivalent rent, because you know three and a half percent is what the government, you know, is using in the CPI as a proxy for real estate costs and rents, which is laughable because, you know, the real cost is up anywhere from 15 to 20% and the government is pretending it's three and a half. Well, the reason that is, is because they're, they're basing results on surveys where they're calling up homeowners and asking them a hypothetical question, if you were to rent out your house, what do you think you would get? And they compare that to the answer they gave the year earlier. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, they really don't have their pulse on the rental market. I mean, they're not landlords. They're not renting. Uh, but maybe after a year or two, some of these homeowners, it may, they may realize just how much they actually could rent their house out for if they actually rented it out. And so what if owner's equivalent rent uh, all of a sudden spikes up and instead of being three and a half percent, it's 10 percent or 12 percent? or I mean, I don't know. I mean, but that's that's the biggest part of the CPI. So we could easily have a huge spike in CPI if we get some type of adjustment in that owner's equivalent rent. I mean, even if the rest of the CPI uh, isn't as bad if that one uh, finally, reflects reality. It makes a huge impact on the overall number.
0: And this is like super important. You've talked about this on your last, I think, two or three podcasts that I've listened to. I don't, I don't know if I'm caught up, but I think <clears throat> like maybe two out of your last three, you've discussed this. So what you're saying is, owner's equivalent rent <clears throat> is essentially a made up number that doesn't really have ties to what the cost of housing is. So there's a delta between the owner's equivalent rent number, which they're putting in at like 3% or whatever it is, and the cost of housing, which is up something like 10% or 20% over the period. 20%. Right. (laughs) And that's the largest component of the CPI number. Is that what you're saying? That's the largest weighting?
1: Yeah. I mean, shelter is the highest weighting because if you think about it, forget about, you know, take taxes out because for a lot of people, their largest single expense is taxes. I mean, that's unfortunate. Uh, but if you forget about taxes, take a look at somebody's after tax income. The biggest expense for most people is either their rent or, you know, their mortgage payment, right? Those are their, their expenses. And, and so the mortgage payment would be a reflection of the price of a house, right? If I had to go out and buy a house, the more expensive the house was kind of the higher my mortgage payment would be. And of course, a lot of Americans don't own homes. They rent and, you know, rents could make up a third or 40% of your budget, right? It's by far the biggest line item in a, a budget. And so it's supposed to have a big weighting in the CPI, because if you're trying to measure the cost of living, the cost of paying rent, right? Paying for your shelter That's a big part of it. And for the government to say that huge part is only going up by three and a half percent when we know it's going up closer to 15 percent, you know, or maybe even 20 if you measure home prices. But the real cost of shelter is triple or quadruple what the government claims. And that is the single biggest part of the CPI. And, again, you know, whenever they go back and they say, well, you know, at least inflation isn't as bad as it was during the 1970s. Well, in the 1970s, we didn't have owner's equivalent rent. We actually used home prices. And if we still used home prices now the way we would then, they couldn't make that claim because this was probably a worse year in the CPI than any individual year of the 1970s.
0: Yeah, and that's just astonishing because – when I first learned about hedonic adjustments, I was like, "All right, well, here's a, you know, here's a clear way where they can rig things." But this owner's equivalent rent thing is really—I mean, if we—if they could—if we could bring one metric back to reality, and we just chose to make it the difference between owner's equivalent rent and what the cost of a mortgage is, and somebody that buys a house now, you know, CPI goes right into the double digits immediately, doesn't it?
1: Oh yeah, and of course, you know, back in the '70s and '80s. We didn't have substitution, so if the price of steak went up, then the CPI went up. Now they'll say, well, the price of steak went up, let's take steak out. You know, let's, let's stick something, let's stick chicken in there, or you know, whatever. You know, and, and they, they didn't have all this um, quality adjustments where they claim that things got better, so they're going to assume that the prices went down, even though they may have gone up, but it seems like this quality adjustment is always a one-way street because they're always assuming things are getting better, but they overlook all the stuff that gets worse, right? One of the easiest examples is airline tickets because airline tickets you used to buy an airline ticket. And when you bought the ticket included in the ticket was you got to check your luggage, you got to select your seat, when you were on board if you were cold they gave you a blanket or they gave you a pillow and they also gave you a meal right all that stuff was included in the price of the ticket now when you buy the price of a ticket all that stuff is a la carte it's all extra right, right? oh you know you want a meal pay for that on board you know you want a pillow that costs money you want headphones we'll sell them to you oh you want to check your bags oh we're going to charge you per bag you want to pick a seat? That's extra, too, right? All this stuff. And, of course, you want to make a change to your reservation? Costs a lot more than it used to. You want to cancel it? Costs a lot more. But none of this stuff is factored in. The government just looks at the price of a ticket before and the price of a ticket now and excludes the fact that all that stuff you used to get for free, you now have to pay for. They don't count any of that. Right. And there are all sorts of examples where quality is reduced instead of prices being increased, or they make you pay for stuff that you used to get for free, and the government doesn't adjust that. But somehow they'll say, oh, your new cell phone is way faster than your old one. Look at all the memory it's got. We better you know, just take the price down and assume that you know, that, that, that phone that you just bought is a lot cheaper than the one you bought last year, even though it's more expensive. So all of these gimmicks are the reason that the CPI has been below 2%. I mean, if it was honest, we would have never had a single year of sub 2% inflation. We may have never had a year of sub 5%, but then the government claims, oh my God, we don't have enough inflation. Look at this. Our target is 2% and we're at 1.8. We need to print more money. We need to keep interest rates at zero because we can't have inflation at 1.8. We need two, right? And, And this has been the justification for this ridiculous monetary policy so now we're so far above two percent they can't even you know pretend anymore yet interest rates are still at zero they're still doing QE even though we have blown through their target by a mile we are triple quadruple what they were shooting for yet they still got their foot on the gas
0: yeah it's crazy and you pointed out something that I want to go back to and that's you know what I call the quality of life con Right. Which is we talk about inflation and you talk about how it's kind of a hidden tax and what makes it nefarious is the fact that it happens behind the scenes and that many people, at least up until recently when it's become a, a political issue and it's been on the mainstream media and people are talking about inflation and you're getting time on Tucker Carlson and things now. But prior to that. You know, inflation was kind of this nefarious thing that worked in the background. And, you know, if you continued to pay the same amount for the products and services year after year that you paid, you would notice that your quality of life was diminishing, right? Because, uh, you know, ostensibly, if you shelled out the same amount and your dollars were worth whatever, 2% less than they were the year prior, your quality of life has to suffer. And that becomes kind of the dumping ground. The quality of life becomes the area where things get chipped away at uh, like you're oh. saying, the, the airlines are a perfect example. Ticket used to come with all this shit. Now you have to pay extra for it. It's those little things that they start to chip away at. And another big one is the idea of shrinkflation. I mean, I go to the grocery store with my family and they think they're getting a deal paying, you know, three for nine dollars. Oh. Uh, when I say look at the net weight of the box and divide it, you know, on a per ounce basis. Yeah,
1: and it's it's not just that they make the portions smaller a lot of times they'll substitute lower quality ingredients and so it's just not as good right that the 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 food you know uh more preservatives not as much you know fresh stuff or that you know they they have different ways of keeping their costs down but at the expense of quality which means then, if you want the same kind of quality you've got to buy something different that may be a lot more expensive than what you were paying before the government doesn't realize that they doesn't get you know factored in to the cpi but you know one of the ways that americans have been able to keep their economic you know necks above water in a rising uh cost of living environment is through debt and so look at all of the debt that this generation of americans has that generations past didn't have at you know a you know similar point in their lives so that we're, we're sacrificing our futures I mean most Americans I mean there's no retirement savings because um, we're spending everything but look at all the credit card debt look at the auto debt look at the student loans mortgage debt everybody is leveraged to the hill, uh, and and you know so in order to survive you're having to take on debt but now that debt is there that needs to be serviced which will be a huge drag on people's future standards of living, assuming the debt has to be repaid and it's not just inflated away, but people are going to be spending their money on interest and repaying principal from what they borrowed in the past, not you know, for new consumption in the present, but they're going to have to pay for the consumption in the past that, that they put on a credit card. And that's the same thing with the U.S. government. I mean, look at the national debt. It's now above 29 trillion. It's going to hit um, 30 trillion, um, you know, soon. But all that debt is ultimately an obligation of the U.S. taxpayer. You know, that government is government that we got, but we didn't pay for it yet. We put it on a credit card. But that doesn't mean we get it for free. It just means we're paying for it later. Uh, so it's an indication of how much lower our future standard of living has to be to pay for all the government that we got that we didn't pay for because we borrowed the money and we have to pay it back we you know we have to pay interest on that debt and you know i'm looking at interest rates look at a chart now on the 30 year bond and 10 year i mean we could really explode higher in 2022 no one's really thinking about what that means but maybe the huge bull market in bonds that started in 1980 you know, when interest rates were at, you know, 20% in the short run, and I think the yield on a 30-year treasury was something like 14%. And we've been in this huge bond bull market. The last several years, obviously, the manic end of that, you know, with the Fed basically putting in the top with massive QE, because now the Fed has this huge balance sheet, right? The Fed is long, $8 trillion worth of treasuries, maybe at the beginning of the biggest bear market in treasuries, in the history of treasuries we could be starting the mother of all bear markets uh in 2022 and that has ominous implications for the u.s economy because if we have to service all this debt at a much higher rate let's say the yields go from you know one and a half percent on a 10-year to five percent or something like that which would still be low uh based on historical you know norms since uh, let's say the second world war and lower than it should be given how much debt we have i mean imagine the, the economy would be completely crushed under the cost of that debt service and the only way around that would be for the fed to launch an unprecedented qe maybe two or three hundred billion dollars a month of qe would be needed in order to buy all the treasuries that the world was trying to get rid of but then what would happen to inflation if that much money was being printed Uh, you know, so it's, 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 there's no way out of this, right? People keep saying, oh, the fed might make a policy mistake. They already made the policy mistake. I mean, (laughs) now they're just doubling I mean, people say, well, the fed might raise rates too much or too soon. There's no chance of that. They're going to raise rates too late and too little, but, any rate hikes will send the economy into recession in fact any rate hikes will probably cause a financial crisis but that doesn't mean it's a mistake to raise them the mistake was lowering them in the first place the mistake was creating a situation that could only result in a financial crisis but that's what the fed did the fed just made a deal with the devil right they kicked the can down the road because they didn't want to have to deal with the problem in the here and now and so now we got to deal with it in the future and you know now is the future we're, you know we've caught up with with the can but there's nothing to can do there is, there is no way out of this without a crisis that's what people don't get right we're going to have to have a crisis we just have to decide the nature of the crisis are we going to let interest rates go way up and have a far worse financial crisis than 2008 with no bailouts for anybody Because imagine how much worse the 08 crisis would have been if there were no bailouts. That's what's going to happen next time. We have a bigger crisis because we have even more debt and nobody gets a bailout. So the government has to sit back and let stock crash, let real estate crash, let bonds crash, let banks fail, let people lose money and do absolutely nothing about it, right? That's the one choice that we have. The other choice is that we just keep inflating, right? Because the Fed is going to continue to taper. Maybe they'll finish the taper and maybe they'll get around to the first rate hike. I don't know how far along the path we're going to get, but somewhere along the way, the Fed is going to blink, right? The Fed is going to reverse course and take back the rate hikes, reverse the taper, go back to QE. That is going to be its biggest mistake because it's going to do that even though inflation is still well above its 2% target. But it's going to do that because everything is collapsing, because the markets are crashing, the economy is tanking, and it is going to make the mistake of trying to save the economy with another round of inflation. And and that, I I think, will be the, the final overdose of QE that destroys the dollar. And then we have a currency crisis, which becomes a sovereign debt crisis. And that's a much worse kind of financial crisis when it potentially is hyperinflation but those are the two possibilities there, there's nothing else there's no middle ground there right you know it's a an inflationary crisis or just a massive financial crisis
0: all right well let me ask you this because we
1: have yeah
0: let, let me ask you this i want to ask you what i asked jack berugin and John Najarian, earlier this month, I published, uh, Jack Burge and I had a podcast. John Najarian, I did a, an interview on my blog. I want to ask you the same question. Did, did the bond, vi- bond vigilantes still have power? Is there such a thing as bond vigilantes anymore? You know, Does anybody have the firepower to force the Fed's hand in terms of rates?
1: No, because had we had bond vigilantes, rates would have gone up a long time ago. So basically, the government killed all the bond vigilantes, right? They've been flushed out uh, during this huge bull market. Uh, So they're not there anymore. But that's one of the reasons the government's been able to get away with running such large deficits for so long is because those bond vigilantes were not on the job to bring some financial discipline to the government. And so now... When we get the bond collapse, the bond crisis, it's going to be much worse because the vigilantes weren't there sooner. So what's going to happen is bonds are just going to implode because everybody that's holding on to treasuries is going to want to get out. right? I mean, think about it realistically. right? You've got a 10-year treasury that doesn't even yield 1.5%. Right. In what world does that make sense? when the Fed's goal is to get inflation down to 2%, their goal is not to bring it down to 1%. So even if the Fed succeeds in bringing inflation to 2%, you're a guaranteed loser at a 1.5% Treasury, right? You can't make money. That's a negative negative, you know, 50 basis point yield, even if the Fed succeeds in bringing inflation back down to 2%, which they won't. Right now, inflation is at 7%, even the way they measure it. So you're looking at negative 5.5% yield on a 10-year. So, like, on what planet would anybody want to buy that? Right. right? I mean, it, it, bonds are supposed to pay you a yield, right? That's why they're low risk. What makes a bond low risk is you get a guaranteed return on your bond. Well, guaranteeing, being guaranteed to lose money is not a guaranteed return. <laughs> That's guaranteed risk, right? You have no chance of not losing money right? You're going to lose for sure. So why on earth would anybody make that loan? And even dumber, why would you make a 30-year loan to the U.S. government? Right now, the yield on a 30-year note bond is 1.9%. So even if inflation is 2%, why would you want to lock in a 10 basis point loss for 30 years? <laughs> it makes no sense. But in reality, what if inflation is 10%? You're going to buy a sub-2% yielding 30-year. You're going to lose 8% of your money every year for 30 years. And and what is your principal going to be worth 30 years from now at 10% inflation compounding over 30 years? I mean, it's worth nothing. You've just thrown your money away. So you know, at some point, reality is going to enter the U.S. Treasury bond market, and the market is going to implode, right? Bond prices are going to crash, right? bonds are more overvalued than stocks right (laughs) so bonds are and the only way to stop the bond market from crashing will be for the fed to intervene but the reason the bond market is going to crash is because the real yields are so negative because of all the inflation well if the fed intervenes in the bond market to prevent bonds from crashing it has to create more inflation in the process. So it has to do exactly what is causing people to wanna sell bonds, only do it more. It's gotta print even more money, create even more inflation, which will drive anybody who is not selling bonds into selling. And so then you get into a situation where there's only one buyer of US Treasuries left on the planet, and that's the Federal Reserve. (laughs) Because all the other central banks are selling, all the other private investors are selling, in which case, we don't even have a central bank anymore, because you know it's just an arm of the Treasury Department. They're just, you know, we're just a complete banana republic. But of course, somewhere along the way, the dollar is no longer the reserve currency because it can't be in that scenario. Well,
0: let me ask you another question. I want to go back to uh, some of the things that Rickard said because I didn't get a chance to ask you about one or two of his other comments earlier, and this kind of falls in line. You know, you said Rickard doesn't really understand inflation. Rickard says, look, the Austrians say that inflation is expansion of the money supply, which is exactly what you say. And he, you know, doesn't buy into that because he says that a lot of the money that's printed and you can argue how much uh, a lot of the money that's printed just goes into bank reserves or it goes to banks and then isn't lent out. From there, so you know he, he the difference between the two of you is he seems to think there's going to be far less of a bid for consumer prices for you know even the limited supply of products that we have uh, coming from this money, and you seem to think that more of this money is making its way out to uh, to the general public. So what's the disconnect there? What is what is he not seeing that you see, and vice versa? I don't, I
1: don't know. I don't know what he's seeing, you know, to be honest with you. I mean, sure. You know, some of the banks are holding more reserves at the fed, but they are making loans. Uh, they're making, you know, they're buying a lot of treasuries too, or, you know, which constitutes loans to the U S government. And then the U S government is spending that money, but the feds policies are helping to prop up asset prices. And people are using those inflated asset prices, right, as collateral to borrow more money and buy more stuff. I mean, we, we, we have record trade deficits. Where does Rickards think Americans are getting all this money? I mean, we have a decline in the labor force participation rate. We have fewer people employed now than before COVID yet we're spending a lot more money now than before COVID. We're buying a lot more stuff. Where are the unemployed people, the people who are not working, getting all this money to buy all this stuff? The money supply is there. And to the extent that some of it hasn't made its way into the real economy yet, that just means that the future inflation will be even worse because it's going to be there. I mean, it's not like this money is going to be created and it's never going to be spent. And, you know, he's overlooking uh, the effect that inflation has had On asset prices i mean that's part of it uh the price of real estate the price of stocks and and other things or cryptocurrencies i mean all kinds of things have been bid up in price because of the inflation that the government's created and we know they're going to create more of it in the future because the more they create in the present the more they have to create in the future because the inflation creates the dependency again it's like the drug dealer getting you hooked on drugs well obviously you know you're going to need more drugs in the future if you keep taking them now as your body uh you know becomes uh dependent on those drugs and you build up a tolerance so that the quantity has to be increased you need you need a bigger dose because you you know your body now you know is underst- knows how to deal with the drugs and so you need more to get uh, to get high and that's what's happening so how quickers can can look at the landscape of these exploding budget deficits and trade deficits and these asset bubbles and ignore uh, the reality of what's going to happen.
0: All right, let's move on to something else that he said that you seem to agree with, which is that you know the weak dollar is going to help drive the price of gold higher. Um, he says, look, gold might stagnate heading into 2022. You've actually said the same thing because I listen to your podcast as well. Um, he says he looks at you know the dollar and gold as a currency pair as an FX pair essentially and that you know it's not until the dollar weakens that gold is going to rise in price. Uh, you know do you look at things the same way as him or do you think there's other factors that could be at play real rates, whatever?
1: Well I don't think the dollar has to weaken for gold to go up, but it will certainly help. I mean gold will do a lot better in a weak dollar environment than it will in a strong dollar environment, you know, especially in terms of dollars, right? Because you, you measure the, the gold price in dollars. But I think what's been holding gold back and, you know, keeping gold, you know, below this $1,800 level uh, where it's been stuck for a while is the, the false belief that the Fed is going to be able to get control of inflation with tighter monetary policy. And it's just believed that that tighter monetary policy is negative for gold, that um, rising interest rates, rising real interest rates are gonna be a headwind for gold. And so people don't want to get into that trade. But if you look at a lot of other inflation-sensitive stocks, they're all going up. I mean, stocks that you know would do well with a lot of inflation have, have been doing well uh, because the inflation is there it's just that people assume the Fed is going to be able to uh, rein it back in in a way that they believe will be negative for gold and I think they're completely wrong I mean there's no way the Fed is going to win the fight with inflation and it may not even fight inflation because it knows it's gonna lose but you know it's not gonna admit that so it's gonna talk tough right even though it has no stick uh, but even if you look at the dot plots from the last uh, FOMC uh, you know, m- meeting, they're talking about fighting inflation, yet interest rates two years from now, at the end of 2023, we're still below 2%. So if we've got an inflation problem on our hands, how is the Fed going to solve that problem by keeping rates below 2% for the next couple years? I mean, if we if we actually look at our inflation as i you know said if we measured it correctly it's the, the worst it's ever been i mean we're on par with 1980 Right? 1980 was thirteen and a half percent that was the peak of inflation in the u.s right Rickard says it's peak inflation now well if he was making the statement in 1980 he'd have been correct now i don't know you know what he was doing back then but when we had peak inflation in 1980 where were interest rates twenty percent you know where was the yield on a 30-year bond, where was a, a, a mortgage rate? They were like 14%. So those high interest rates, to me, seem consistent with, like, a peak inflation, right? Meaning, like, okay, like, inflation has really driven bonds through the floor, rates are really high, and people expect high inflation. Because if the you, have Fed had real rates rates. you have to move real
0: rates higher, you know?
1: Yeah, if, if if real rates were at 20%, right? Or, I mean, if nominal rates were at 20%, the Fed got to 20%, but inflation was 13%, we had 7% real rates, right? Now, the reason real rates had to be this high is because when inflation was 13%, people assumed it was going to get worse. We had had 10 years of bad inflation, and people just assumed that it would get worse. So in order to reverse that psychology and to actually have peak inflation, right? We had to have 20% rates and it was like, kind of like a euphoric peak where, you know, a blow off top and in inflation where the public became so expecting inflation and look at the price of gold. When we had peak inflation, gold hit its high of $850 in 1980, but you know, it was at $35 an ounce in 1970. So think about how much the price of gold went up during that period and how much inflation people expected in 1980 if they were willing to pay $800 an ounce for the price of gold, right? That was a overvalued price because investors were assuming a much higher future rate of inflation than the one that we actually had. So that's kind of what peak inflation looks like, right? I mean, they, investors have thrown in the towel. They just expect inflation forever. They're buying gold at, you know, $800, you know, which is literally, but 20 times, you know, what it was earlier in the decade, right? They don't, they don't want treasuries that yield 14%, right? You couldn't give those treasuries away because everybody knew that inflation was gonna wipe out that yield, right? And of course, everybody was wrong. You should have been dumping your gold in 1980 and loading up on US treasuries you could have bought the U.S. stock market. The Dow Jones was under 1000 di- The dividend yield on the Dow, I think, was 6%. Uh, people were so afraid of inflation. That's what peak inflation looks like. We're at trough inflation right now. We're, like, <laughs> just getting started because, like, nobody thinks it's a problem. Trough right? inflation. Nobody is running into gold. Nobody is dumping their treasuries yet. And the crazy thing is our trough inflation or trough is basically where it peaked in the 80s because we're right now where we were at the peak of the 80s when we were fighting inflation with everything we had. Right? We're already at that level now, and we haven't even started the fight yet. The Fed is talking about maybe raising interest rates next year, and we've already got inflation as bad as it was at the peak of the 1970s, and we're just getting started. We haven't even had our first rate hike yet. So imagine where inflation is going to be. When we actually get to peak inflation, this cycle, when we have so much more debt, so much more money printing, I mean, it, it, the inflation rate will peak eventually, but it's going to be much, much higher than what it peaked at uh, during the 1970s.
0: Trough inflation. That's the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. new term. I like that one. Just uh, for those of you playing at home, the $800 announced they were buying uh, gold for in 1980 inflation adjusted to 2021 would be $2,698 an ounce. So I just ran that little uh, uh, inflation calculator for you just so we could get a relative idea of what they were paying for gold in 1980 when it went up to $800 an ounce, as you said.
1: Yeah, and that's why, too, when a lot of these you know crypto people, they point back to 1980 to say, hey, look how bad gold has performed since 1980. That's because it was so overvalued in 1980, given all the fears of inflation that turned out not to be the case. Because Volcker did the right thing in 1980, and we, 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 we swallowed the bitter-tasting medicine. But, you know, the reason that we swallowed it was because we could. We, we were able to survive it because the U.S. economy was in far better shape in 1980. We still had trade surpluses. We were still a creditor nation. Uh, So the Fed had not done nearly as much damage to the underlying strength of the economy as it's done now. I mean, now we're the mirror image of what we used to be as the world's biggest debtor and the world's biggest debtor nation. We have this huge bubble. And, you know, the national debt in 1980, I mean, it was maybe a trillion or still below a trillion at that time. But um, most of the debt was long term. Most of it was 30 year treasuries. And so even when the Fed raised rates, It didn't impact the debt service costs on most of the national debt. It was only the new money that was borrowed. But now we have this $30 trillion debt, and most of it is financed with T-bills. You know, very little of it is financed with 30-year bonds. Um, I think a third of the debt matures over the next year. That's $10 trillion, and that stuff is financed at 1% or lower right now. What happens if it has to be rolled over at 5% or higher? Where does the government get all the extra money to pay all that interest on that debt? I mean, it's you know, if interest rates go up, let's say to five percent, and it costs the government an extra, you know, one point two trillion a year just to pay the interest on the national debt, that's twelve trillion over ten years. That's you know what you know, eight times the Build Back Better bill plan that isn't going to pass because it was too expensive higher interest on the national debt dwarfs build back better i mean that is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to discuss what happens to us if we have to start paying a realistic rate of interest on the enormity of our debt
0: well that's a good transition too because i wanted to ask you about joe Manchin. uh you know who earlier this week Came out and said, look, he's a no on the Build Back Better bill. He couldn't explain it to his constituents. There was too much bullshit in it. It was, you know, coming at a time where the country was in a precarious position financially, which, you know, I thought was fantastic. I wanted to get your take. Is that, uh, you know, is Mansion the symptom of maybe a, a, a bigger change that could be occurring within the Democratic Party? Or do you think this is just politics and uh, he'll eventually cave?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if he's going to cave or not, I mean, they may eventually pare back the bill so that he'll, you know, he'll be able to support it. But of course, if the economy ends up in recession or nearing recession between now and the election and another economic rescue package, you know, is proposed, he'll probably get on board. You may not be able to resist it at that time. So right now they're able to say hey, the economy is okay. You know, we don't need the stimulus, but if it gets to a point where the elections are coming and it looks like the stimulus is needed, you know, in quotes, uh, he, you know, may ultimately have to, you know, come on board.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Uh, you know, I was hopeful that it would be, Uh, You know, I wrote about it in my blog yesterday or two days ago, and I I was just kind of hopeful that it might be something that puts the Democrats in check, at least for the time being. I mean, they got their infrastructure bill passed. And, you know, the far left agenda that Biden seems to be lending his ear to, and it it isn't necessarily him, but it's those on the left that are making policy, um, really leans very heavily on the uh, on the whole modern monetary theory Principle and being able to close the delta between, you know, our spending and tax receipts with printed money. And I was just, you know, I was yeah. I guess maybe too I I idealistic in hoping that this could be the sign yeah. of somebody catching on.
1: And and by the way, too, that infrastructure bill was completely not paid for, right? It's all borrowed money. And so all that money is going to be spent in the economy. So Rickards is out there saying, oh, the money's not going to get into the economy. How is the government going to pay for the infrastructure without spending the money into the economy? Of course, they're going to hire people, and those salaries are going to be paid. They're going to have to buy raw materials, and you know the the, the producers are going to get paid. So all this money is going out there. I mean, the deficit is going to be much higher as a result of Build Back Better, and um, you know the 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 infrastructure spending is going to do nothing to improve the economic output of the efficiency of the country. I mean, it's possible, but I doubt it, that in the long run, maybe some of this infrastructure spending will be helpful. Probably won't, but in theory it could be. But in the short run, it can't be. Because the infrastructure only helps with your productivity once it's completed, right? Let's say you're building a bridge and that bridge Uh, reduces the the, the transportation time between a couple of points. And so we we can be more efficient in in moving uh, goods or people from point A to point B. And that greater efficiency or a lower cost ultimately ends up with greater output, right? You you, you get that benefit in the long run. But you don't get that benefit until the bridge is complete. If it takes you three years to build it, during those three years, it's a drain on the economy because the, the economy needs to generate the extra resources that are required to build that bridge. Meanwhile, no one could use it because it's under construction. Uh, so it's providing no net benefit to the economy, but it's a cost, a burden on the economy that the economy has to bear. So infrastructure spending in the short run is always a drain. So they, they, they were saying this uh, infrastructure bill is gonna help with the inflation problem by, you know, by making us more efficient. Well, if it does, you're talking about years and years into the future. Not right now. It's, it's going to exacerbate uh, the inflation. You know, you, now you've got more demand for raw material. you got more demand for the, the, the labor. So it's going to help drive prices even higher.
0: Yeah, and finally I want to ask you, uh, I haven't spoken to you since you did your debate with Alex Mashinsky on Kitco, which was another thing that I wrote about a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to... Uh, just go over a couple of points that were made. And I sent you my article that was critical of Mr. Mashinsky during that interview. I thought you made a lot of good points. I thought that, you know, his repertoire of arguments was similar to many Bitcoin bulls, lots of logical fallacies and ad hominem attacks. Um, But specifically the one that bothered me was his claim that Bitcoin pays a yield, um, which of course (laughs) may be true on his platform, Uh, but of course isn't true intrinsically. And I thought you did a great job pressing the question of where does the money come from to pay the yield that he's paying on his platform? Now, you know, this type of statement to an unsophisticated investor really signifies the type of bubble we're in now, Peter, if you ask me. I mean it and it's just, in my opinion, it's just downright a nefarious thing to suggest. Um, so I wanted to get your take on that and, and kind of ask you what you thought some of the bigger fallacies of his arguments were during that debate.
1: Yeah, well, it's all fallacy. I mean this, yeah, I mean, they can pay a yield because people are taking those Bitcoin and they're trading with them, and they're they're hoping to generate a profit, and then they use the profit to pay uh, the yield. But what happens if they don't make a profit? Right. What happens if they lose money trading Bitcoin? I mean, the, the, the yields that they're paying are very high, but they're, they're trying to do this in order to prevent people from selling their Bitcoin. I mean, that is the big uh, game that they're all playing. I mean, I, I read a statistic that, 80% of the people in Bitcoin have never sold any, right? And, and so that means they've never actually realized any gain on their Bitcoin. I mean, they have the gain on paper, but they haven't done anything. Now, a lot of these people, you know, may be wanting to sell their Bitcoin, but the way to convince them not to is, oh, okay, well, well, maybe we could pay you interest on your Bitcoin or, or hell, we'll, we'll let you borrow money. We'll lend you money. You can pledge your Bitcoin as collateral. You don't have to sell it. You can borrow against it, so you can still buy that new car. Uh, you can still take a vacation. You just don't have to sell any of your precious Bitcoin to do it. We'll just loan you the money, and you don't have to worry about paying it back Well, because Bitcoin goes up forever. In fact, that was what, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, MicroStrategy. Sailor. Um Michael Saylor, he just said Bitcoin is going to go up forever. You know, so, you know, there was an old saying on Wall Street that trees don't grow to the sky. But apparently, uh, except for the Bitcoin tree, which will grow to the sky because Bitcoin is going to go up forever and and never stop. But, you know, a lot of people have that attitude. But look, it's clear uh, that, you know, Bitcoin is a bubble, that all these cryptocurrencies are bubble that they don't have any value unto themselves they're not backed up by anything else of value uh they're 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 actually worse than 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 the dollar or you know you know <laughs> as a uh, you know as a currency so it, it, it it's just a speculative uh token it trades like that i mean it trades like any one of kathy wood's stocks in her portfolio i mean that's what Bitcoin is correlated to. I mean, it trades nothing like gold. It looks nothing like gold. It is nothing like gold. Yes, they want to compare it to gold for the purpose of conning people into buying it, but it doesn't act anything like gold. Um, you know, And that's why the price has gone up so much more. I mean, you could say, oh, Bitcoin is a better store of value because it's gone up so much more than gold, but that doesn't define a store of value. I mean, Bitcoin is down now about 30% from its peak a month ago um stores of value don't collapse like that <laughs> you know they they you know, they say well yeah bitcoin is a great store of value but it's just really volatile you know it's it's a safe haven it's an inflation hedge but you got to be prepared for it to collapse at any moment <laughs> you know those things are mutually inconsistent
0: well the funny thing too and just is
1: because bitcoin has recovered from prior crashes doesn't guarantee it's going to recover from the next one you know i mean it, it, it can crash three or four or five times and come back, and then it can crash the next time and never come back. Right? You don't know which Bitcoin crash is just a buying opportunity for the next high, or which Bitcoin crash is the final crash.
0: Right. And the, the funny thing too you, you is don't, you, to go to go back to your statement about him comparing it to gold. Is, you know, he was doing it even when he didn't know it. He kept saying that, you know, Bitcoin is the gold standard. And I wrote in my article, well, why the fuck do you think they call it the gold standard? You know? Yeah, they're going to have to re-
1: rename it the Bitcoin standard. Right. right? It's as good. But the, the worst thing about this, though, is the legitimacy that the financial media gives to all the Bitcoin pumpers. And, and Kathy these Wood. These guys have simply been bought and paid for by the advertising dollars. Because you look at something like a CNBC, the vast majority of the ads on the network are from crypto-related businesses. And, and, so, and they're also trying to generate ratings, and they're trying to bring in the young demographic that owns a lot of crypto. And so they're basically placating that audience with lots of pro-Bitcoin content. So they get the Bitcoin people to watch and then the advertisers are there and they spend all this money, you know, look at the massive pump uh, from the grayscale trust. I mean, that was probably the biggest advertiser on CNBC. And when they really ramped up their, you know, drop gold campaign, they had that thing at a 30, 40% premium to NAV. You know, the, the, the the fools watching CNBC were paying 40% premiums to buy uh, grayscale, Yesterday, it went to a 22% discount. That's the biggest in the history of the of, of, of the, the closed-end fund. But a lot of people got suckered into buying that because of this favorable nonstop coverage that CNBC gives to crypto. And, you know, they, they have these guests on routinely. They bring them on as if they're non uh, – you know, they're unbiased, and they'll say, oh, let's bring on this – Bitcoin expert, and let's get his opinion on this big drop today. I mean, what does it mean? Well, it's just a great buying opportunity. Everybody needs to buy, you know. And then when Bitcoin makes a new high, well, let's bring this <laughs> other guy on. What does it Well, you should keep buying it. It never means I mean, anything it's bad. It's never right? going to go down.
0: It never means anything bad. Like, what does this? What does this drop mean? It never means anything bad. It's always. No, it's a always
1: going to go up. Everything is great. And they they never get any pushback. Nobody ever calls them out. Nobody challenges them. They're like, oh, okay, yep, that makes sense. Yep, this is the new money. This is the new thing, right? But you know, at the same time, you know, they love the Federal Reserve. They you know they love the U.S. economy. Everything is great. But then they love Bitcoin. Bitcoin's going to keep going up. You know, the dollar's great. Bitcoin's great. Well, I mean, if the dollar's so great, what do we need Bitcoin for? <laughs> it's like Bitcoin is supposed to is supposed to be a You know, it's it's selling point is that, well, the dollar stinks, right? Because there's massive inflation and, you know, we can't have dollars. Now you've got, you know, Michael Saylor, who says, oh, you can't have any dollars on his balance on your balance sheet. You got to replace dollars with Bitcoin is talking about how great the dollar is and the dollar is the greatest of the fiat currencies. And it will always be the reserve currency. I mean, he's he's he doesn't want to insult the dollar now because he doesn't want to scare the regulators because the regulators are now like threatening to regulate Bitcoin. He's like, oh, why? Bitcoin, they're, they're trying to say Bitcoin is good for the dollar. But, yes, we need to back the dollar with Bitcoin. <laughs> That'll make the dollar stronger. Let's back it with Bitcoin. I mean, it, this is all absurd, right? But the financial media, I mean, CNBC, they completely bought into the dot-com bubble. They were the big cheerleaders of that. I remember you know, Henley Brodgett and, and all those guys coming on in 1999, and you know, they were just eating all that nonsense up. You know, leading all their viewers down that primrose path, they had no problem with uh, uh, the housing bubble. They were cheerleaders back then for th- that that bubble economy and the Goldilocks era. Um, you know, they, they they've never seen a bubble that they can identify, and you know, they've never missed an opportunity to encourage their viewers to buy into the top of a mania. All right, I got two more. But I think th- this is the latest. This is the latest example of that, and this is by far the most egregious. Um, and you know, I mean, they, they just do not have any, any, any you know counterpoints. They 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 do not bring on
0: no, bears
1: on crypto to well, not- you know to, to to give out to give the negative. I mean, occasionally somebody will say, "Well, I don't really believe it. I don't own it myself." But that's about it, you know, but, you know, but, but, the bad, you know, if other people want to buy it, you know, that's, you know, you know, they, they, nobody really talks about how completely ridiculous this whole thing is. And all of this money, it's all, um, uh, malinvestment. And I see it, you know, I live, you know, so many people in my neighborhood are in these crypto industries. I mean, I see all the capital, all the talent, uh, that is being wasted on this bubble, you know, it's it, it's all it's all for nothing. All of this stuff is going to come crashing down.
0: Um, I think that you're right about the financial news media. I have two more questions. I know we're on a, like, somewhat of a time schedule here. I want to say, first and foremost, you know, I just wrote about Kathy Wood, who put out this investor letter on December 17th. She got a lot of criticism for it because she came out and said that, you know, her flagship fund could see returns of 40% uh, compounded for the next five years, which, of course, everybody thought was an insane thing to say at this point. She then went back a day or two later and changed her letter to say, oh, 30 to 40 percent. And it's across our broad strategies and not just from this one fund, which, of course, annualized and compounded over five years, a 10 percent difference between one fund and her you know, portfolio of 10 funds. They're two completely insanely different things and nobody has challenged her Bloomberg did you know I wrote about it on my blog I think I was the first to break the changes but then Bloomberg followed up and just said oh well here's the changes and nobody nobody criticized her nobody said how is it possible nobody said what does your model look like that you can make a 10% change compounded over 5 years and shift from just one fund to your, you know, portfolio of ten ETFs. It's an insane thing to say. So your point about the media not pushing back is taken. I have two final questions for you. The first one is, I want to get your response to a tweet by Elizabeth Warren a couple days yeah, ago. but before you get to that, let me okay. just
1: comment on Do it. on this Kathy Wood because yeah, look, I mean, I don't think she's like lying, right? I think she actually believes her own bullshit. That is the problem. She's, you know, she's been put up on this pedestal and everybody thinks she's so smart because she did something really dumb and it paid off, right? She just bought the most overvalued crap and in buying that, the price went up, right? And 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 now she thinks she's so smart because, you know, and and she's believed her own press clippings and I, she's just completely irrational, but the, the, uh, lawyers or the owners of these funds or ever, they re- need to realize that their lawsuits are going to come, right? right. Because <clears throat> investors are going to say, I put my money in this fund because she basically guaranteed me that I was going to make 30, 40% a year and I lost 90%, <laughs> you know, and I invested based on these interviews and based on these statements, right? You don't make those kind of statements you know, those forward looking statements with that kind of degree of certainty in a litigious environment, like the one that we have in the United States. I mean, you're just asking for trouble, right? But I think to me, it's also a sign of desperation on her part. She sees her funds going down and she probably sees maybe there's some outflows and she, she, she has to plug up these holes. So she's getting desperate and saying, no, everything is super cheap. This is, this is a great bargain. It's a great value. You know, Everything is relative. I mean, people want to say, oh, Bitcoin is on sale. Oh, it used to be 69000 but now you can, you can snap it up for 48000 I mean, 48000 is not a bargain. I mean, is it less than 69000 You know, it's like these department stores. They mark stuff way up so they can put it on sale and pretend you're getting a good deal. right? They, like, that, that's notorious for the, the jewelry department. If you ever go to a department store and you go to jewelry, there's always a sale on jewelry. It's never full price it's always on sale, but that's to get you to think you're getting a deal because the full price is ridiculous. They just make this really high price so that you think you're getting a sale and they run Bitcoin up to 69,000 and then it collapses to 48,000 and people think, oh, it's on sale. It's not on sale, it's way overpriced. It's just less overpriced than it was before and that's basically her entire book. Yes, you know we, we're, we're off the highs, but nothing is cheap. Nothing is a bargain. All these stocks have a long way to fall. Now, does that mean all these stocks are going to go bankrupt? Oh, well, some of them might survive, but, but a lot of them are never going to survive. You know? uh, it's just all a bunch of mania. It's a, you know, and, and again, it's a lot of it is fueled by the Fed because if capital wasn't so cheap, a lot of these money-losing companies wouldn't be in business. They wouldn't have been able to get the capital they needed but for uh, the Fed's uh, monetary policy.
0: Let me ask you this question about uh, something Elizabeth Warren tweeted a couple days ago uh, and just get your response to this. I mean, I know why this is nonsense, but I'd like for you to explain it to my listeners. Uh, I mean, she's just a fool. I think when it comes to economics, she tweeted giant grocery store chains force high food prices onto American families. (laughs) <laughs> while re- while rewarding executives and investors with lavish bonuses and stock buybacks I'm demanding they answer for putting corporate profits over consumers and workers during the pandemic Now why is that statement flawed
1: Well first of all I mean it's flawed for so many reasons but um corporations are private enterprises right and they're owned by their shareholders, and the shareholders have invested in those companies, not you know because they're trying to be charitable. I mean, they're trying to earn a return on their investment. So, number one, corporations are supposed to put their owners first, right? right? They're not supposed to uh, put uh, other you know workers or customers first. They're supposed to put their their, their shareholders first. Now, that being said, the way to maximize profits for your shareholders is to put your customers first, because if you don't put your customers first, you're going to lose them. Uh, they're going to go to your competitors, but corporations aren't putting their customers first because they're benevolent and they're nice people. They're just trying to put their shareholders first. And they know that in order to do that, they need to put their customers first. So they always do. Right. Private businesses always put customers first. Why do you think we have the expression? The customer is always right. 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 No matter how wrong they are, they're the customer. That's where your bread is buttered. Right. Without a customer, you don't have a business. So this is the invisible hand. This is Adam Smith. This is the beauty of capitalism. It's the government. Right. The government, when they try to put the customer first, you know, they, they, they get a lousy experience right? When you, when you go to the post office, you know, that's, that's government, right? That nobody enjoys going to the post office or the DMV, right? They don't have a good customer experience because these are not profit seeking companies and they couldn't give a damn about the customer, the taxpayer, but private businesses do. But what Elizabeth Warren is upset at is that companies are raising prices like grocery stores are raising their prices. Well, they have to raise their prices because their costs are going up. If they don't raise their prices, they're going to go out of business. They're going to lose money. And so if they have to close down their supermarket, how does that help their customers if their customers no longer have a place to shop? In fact, all of these companies are reluctantly passing on their higher costs. In fact, look at producer prices, which are up almost 10% officially year over year compared to, you know, 7% Seven percent for consumer prices. Producers are not raising prices enough. Businesses are basically taking a hit to their margins. Right? They're they're sacrificing their profits right now in order to uh, keep their customers happy. That is the reality of what is going on. Elizabeth Warren doesn't want to acknowledge what's been happening, but it's not going to happen indefinitely, you know, businesses are going to have to pass these costs on, which is another reason I think that next year's CPI numbers could be worse because I think that the businesses will finally start passing on all of their higher costs, not just some of their higher costs. In fact, they may try to catch up to some of the costs they didn't pass on in 2021 in, in 2022, you know, and as far as, you know, the workers look, yes, Companies need to treat their workers well or their workers will quit and work someplace else. There's competition, but businesses have a duty to minimize their costs. They owe that to their shareholders and they owe that to their customers because customers want low prices. And how do you keep prices low? You keep costs low. Labor is a cost. And so businesses need to try to minimize their labor costs and that is actually good for workers because workers are also consumers so every worker who has a job at a company is also a customer of lots of other companies right so workers benefit from low wages every time they buy something right and so if elizabeth ward had her way and supermarkets just gave all their workers raises Well then all the customers would have to pay even higher prices for their food. Right? Because the customer ends up paying all the wages. Right? Not the employer, the customer. Because those wages are embedded in the price of the goods. Right? So every time these politicians are demanding that, you know, workers be paid more, they're also demanding that customers pay more. In fact, a great example of that, you want to see the hypocrisy, is go to my YouTube channel and look at the video I did at Walmart in a parking lot. I don't know if you ever saw that video. I haven't. But, no. You know, yeah, yeah. Go check it out. It's on my YouTube channel. It's one of my top videos. I mean, it's one of the top ten. I, you know, it. it I don't know. It's got three four hundred thousand views. It should have more. You know, but you know, but um, <laughs> they and, and should all have is, more, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I, I went into a Walmart parking lot, and this is when everybody was talking about, you know, we need a fifteen dollars minimum wage, and so I went down there to troll these people. And I had, you know, I had a sign that said "15 for 15," right? And what I meant by my "15 for 15" campaign is let's raise prices 15 percent, so that all the workers at Walmart can get $15 an hour, right? And I kind of made a count. Cal- know, I said so this is about what it would take, you know, for everybody to get $15 an hour. Walmart just needs to raise prices 15% and all the money will go to the workers. So I was telling people, do you, do you believe in $15 minimum wage? Should we do that? And they said, yeah. And I said, great, because, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm collecting money here. And at the end of the day, I'm going to give it to the workers so that they all get $15 an hour. So what I'm asking you to do right now is just, you know, contribute to it. So how much did you spend here today? Let me see your receipt. And if someone said, okay, I spent $100, I said, great. So 15% of that is $15. So will you put $15 in my box? Because we're going to give it to the workers at the end of the day. And, like, nobody wanted to put any money in the box. Nobody wanted to pay higher prices, but they all wanted the workers to have higher wages.
0: Yeah, well, it's like, like, well,
1: but where do you think the money is going to come from?
0: It's like it's like millionaire Elizabeth Warren advocating for people to pay more taxes. And I always tweet out, you know, what what size was the check that you cut the Treasury this year that, you know, was extra on top of what you owed it? You know, you're you're more than welcome. You know, I think she's worth twenty oh, yeah. million. Why doesn't or something she like can that? start by like? Why doesn't she just not take a salary? Yeah, as a there senator? you go. Why doesn't yeah. she contribute that exactly? And worth they put free. that towards you know uh, social programs and the things. But no, she wants to take it. She wants to take it from other people. And like everybody else, and how the big is behavioral... her staff?
1: You know, why doesn't she, why doesn't she just return all her staff budget? You know, exactly. you know what does she need all that all those people? You know, I mean, I I'd, I, I can be a senator and I would I have no staff. It would just be me. <laughs> You we know, <laughs> gotta I don't teach need you how to work your phone stamp stamp first. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Listen, my last question: put finance aside, put politics aside, put gold and silver aside. Let's not even think about that stuff. What's like one, uh, you know, one thing that you'd like to say to the listeners, uh, putting 2021 behind us and heading into 2022? Uh, what's some like? Human advice, some life advice. Nothing to do with Bitcoin. Nothing to do with gold. Nothing to do with finance. What's your What's your life advice for people heading into 2022?
1: Well, I guess enjoy it while you can, right? <laughs> you know don't uh, don't forget to smell the roses, right? I mean, that's I mean, as far as you know, your your the life advice. I mean, have a little fun when you can. Uh, you know, try to try to make the best of whatever situation that you find yourself in. Uh, And I think a lot of people are going to find themselves in some pretty dire situations. I mean, maybe it'll be 2022. I think there is a pretty high likelihood, Uh, but it's also possible that we uh, kick the can into 2023. I mean, you know, it's always hard to say, but all the ingredients are there for a major uh financial crisis dollar crisis
0: <laughs> i knew, uh, I knew you were there, gonna come you know. back to finance i knew you were gonna go back to well finance. i'm just
1: saying just you know have fun while you can you know
0: <laughs> <laughs> it took you all right well are you at your desk in puerto rico
1: i'm at a desk in puerto rico yeah
0: do you have it do you have a like a bottle of brandy or something that you keep at your desk
1: no no i'm not like you i'm not like you know just like i know you have you always have something you know you, you Available to drink when you do your. You don't have, you
0: don't have anything. You don't have anything in the room. You can't. You know. Join I've got me water. Here for... I'm drinking water right now. No, Jesus. All right. Well. But um, I got you know. You drink your water. I'm at my house, and I'll I'll got toast plenty to of you. Alcohol
1: in my house. I'll so toast I, yeah, you I here. can walk into another room and, and and fix myself a drink. But it's one o'clock in the afternoon, so oh, who gives probably a not going to be drinking. I'm I'm going to go with the kids. I got one more call I got to make, and then I'm going with the kids to the water park. <sighs>
0: All right. Well, I just did a toast for you. Here's to 2022. Four years of the podcast, Peter. You know, I started this podcast because I thought you didn't get enough coverage in the mainstream media. So it's cool to have you on four years later.
1: All right. Well, good luck. Keep on going. I see, you know, yeah, you're getting more popular, you know, so that's good. Yeah. we we'll, get into a real business.
0: We'll see you in 2022. All right, buddy. All right, have a good one. All right, thanks, Peter. That was the one, the only, Mr. Peter Schiff. I fucking asked him that question, like, dude, don't talk about finance. And I was like, it's probably going to take him 15 seconds to get back to talking about finance, and that's what he did. It's been a hell of a year. My patrons, you people are fucking incredible. Thanks for keeping me going. I just, you know, on some real shit, four years ago started the podcast. It's just been incredible. We've racked up, like, Almost, I think, 5 million listens between uh, the regular shit and YouTube. And uh, all really because I just wanted to figure out what was going on. I didn't want to be Mr. Finance fucking podcast guy or any of that shit. But like I said, I wanted to have Peter on. I wanted to have guys like Bill Fleckenstein on, you know, people that I wanted to hear from. And so because you guys choose to listen, and, you know, I think it's because I don't really have much of an agenda. I just sit here and try to shoot the shit. Um, I was trying to get. Peter Schiff to have a drink. That didn't work. But other than that, I don't really have an agenda. And uh, you guys have made it into the uh, very minor success that it is, at least enough for me to want to continue forward. I have some great shit coming up for the new year. I was supposed to talk to um, Jeff Mackey last week. We actually started a podcast and it got fucked up um, because my setup sucks. So at some point, I'm going to redo that. Other than that, I would encourage you going to read my article on Fringe Finance, which is my blog called COVID Is Over If You Want It. It is about forgetting all the bullshit and the nonsense and trying, like Peter said, to stop and smell the roses this holiday. Return to tradition. Return to family. Return to your community. Return to the things that are important to you. Return to love. Give somebody a hug. Turn the media off. Turn the market off. Turn the politics off. Turn the fear-mongering off and uh, Stop and Smell the Roses here for these next 10 days. You will not hear from me again until 2022, folks. And I just uh, I want to say thank you so much for everything over the last four years, for people that continue to contribute on my Patreon. Uh, I love you guys very much, and uh, I'll see you soon. All right. Peace.